Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. This week, we're working through a selection of Spurgeon sermons running from 479 to 485 in the the, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. And our featured sermon this week is 483, The Life and Walk of Faith. It was preached at the beginning of December, the 7th of December, 1862, by Spurgeon at the Tabernacle. And his text on this occasion is Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. He wants to point in this sermon at Christ as the source of your life, the principle of your action, the joy of your spirit, not just when you first put your faith in Jesus Christ, but all the way through your life as a believer, that this is the characteristic spirit, attitude, disposition, relationship that the believer sustains to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as at the first, your source of life as at the first, the principle of your action, as at the first, the joy of your spirit, so let him be the same even till life's end, the same when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and enter into the joy and the rest which remain for the people of God. So he's seeking to be simple here. I think he's always seeking to be simple, but he wants to teach a simple, useful lesson in the plainest possible language, and he's going to do it on three lines, by way of exposition, by way of advocacy, we'll explain that a little more when we get to it, and then thirdly, by way of application. So he's basically going to explain the text, then he's going to plead for the text, uh, plead on behalf of the principle, and then he's going to apply the text. With regard to the first, Oh, that the gracious Spirit, who alone can lead us into all truth, would aid me while I endeavour to open up this verse by way of exposition. And there are these two lines that he wants to follow. The life of faith, receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, and the walk of faith, so walk ye in him. Now, it's, uh, as we sometimes say, it's not the neatest sermon. By this we mean that while he has this nice three-point approach, exposition, advocation, application, that the, uh, the substance of each of those points isn't particularly uniform. At points you feel like he's he's trying to pack a great deal in, but it is still coherent. There's a there's a, a rhythm, there's a, a a continuity through each of these points. With regard then to this exposition, the Holy Spirit reveals to us first of all the life of faith and then the walk of faith. Now, the life of faith is represented as receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. And what Spurgeon is going to do here, and it's not something he often does uh, explicitly, although it's always there, I think, in most of it, at least usually there in his sermons, is he's going to walk us through the language of this text, portion by portion. So this receiving, then, implies the very opposite of anything like merit. Here is a theme we recognise from Spurgeon that this has to do with the eternal the, the eternal God's gracious dealings and sovereign mercy with regard to sinners. The eternal life which God gives his people is in no sense whatever the fruit of their exertions. It is the gift of God. 
He who talks about winning salvation by works, says our preacher, he that thinks he can earn it by prayers, by tears, by penance, by mortification of the flesh, that is, by self-imposed sufferings, by zealous obedience to the law, makes a mistake. For the very first principle of the divine life is not giving out, but receiving. It is that which comes from Christ into me, which is my salvation, not that which springs out of my own heart, but that which comes from the divine Redeemer and changes and renews my nature. It is not then what I give, but what I receive, which must be life to me. Then again, with regard to this basic idea of receiving, he says it seems to imply in it a sense of realisation, making the matter a reality. You receive what is substantial. Faith lays hold upon Jesus Christ. It gives a substance to the history and idea of Christ. It puts real solidity into the spirit and name of Christ. Now, Spurgeon isn't saying that faith makes Christ real or that Christ isn't real until faith grasps him, but rather that faith realises Christ. He's not merely a name. He's not just a, a, a distant historical figure. But by an act of faith, Christ becomes a real person in the consciousness of our heart, as real to us as our own flesh and blood and bones. And we speak of him and think of him as we would of our brother, our father, our friend. He means here that faith grasps Christ as a real, whole person and delights in him accordingly. And so receiving then means getting a grip of something or grasping something. It becomes your own. You, you actually get it in your hand. Christ then becomes my Christ, says Spurgeon. His blood cleanses my sin and it is cleansed. His righteousness covers me and I am clothed with it. His spirit fills me and I am made to live by it. He becomes to me as much mine as anything that I can call my own. Nay, what I call my own here on earth is not mine. It's only lent to me and will be taken from me. But Christ, he says, Christ is so mine that neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come shall ever be able to rob me of him. There's that appropriation, getting a grasp upon something. This real Jesus is yours by grace. And so he says, now think what this receiving further means. And he says it's used in some 10 or a dozen senses in Holy Scripture, but he's just going to run through a few of them just to give us the, the basics. To receive is often used for taking, for holding that which we take in, for simply believing, for entertaining or uh, spending time with someone and then enjoying someone or something. And again, he's turning all of these back onto this basic idea of receiving Jesus Christ. So we take the life and the love and the merit and the nature and the grace of Jesus as they flow freely into us. We take what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. We hold what we take in. By faith it comes, by faith it's kept. Faith gives me what I have, faith keeps what I have. Faith makes it mine and keeps it mine. Faith gets hold with one hand and clasps with both hands with a grasp that neither death nor life can loose then it's simply believing, taking whatever Jesus says at face value and living accordingly. It's entertaining. It's this communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, this fellowship with him, spending time, giving him, says Spurgeon, the best seat at the table of our souls. And then again, it often means simply to 
enjoy. You receive a crown of life which does not fade away. That is, you enjoy it. You enjoy heaven. You are satisfied with its bliss. If you were hungry and there were bread on the table, you would eat it. Oh, eat and drink then, beloved, of your Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a friend, you enjoy his company. You have a friend in Christ, so enjoy his conversation. Enjoy his uh, engagement with you. So says Spurgeon, this is what I mean when I say receiving. These are some of the things that lie behind the apostolic language of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. So you are receiving. You are graciously having bestowed upon you and laying hold of, in accordance with that grace, this real person. You're taking, you're holding fast, you're believing, you're entertaining, you are enjoying who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon doesn't want us just to get this notion. He wants us to understand the person. He says, we've been given life from the dead, we've been given pardon from sin, we've been given imputed righteousness, and yes, these are all precious things, but you see, we are not content with them, we have received Christ himself. The Son of God has been poured out into us, and we have received him and appropriated him, we've taken him to ourselves. Mark, I say, not merely the blessings of the covenant, but himself, not merely the purchase of his blood, but he himself, from whose veins the blood has flowed, has become ours. And every soul that hath eternal life is this day a possessor of Christ Jesus the Lord. So Spurgeon's making this important point and an important distinction. Not just the gifts, but the giver. Not merely the benefits, but the benefactor. It is Christ himself, and it is in and with him that we receive all these goodnesses. Have I received Christ then in his relationship to me as a saviour? My soul, has Christ saved thee? Come, no ifs or ands about it. You Have you received him as your saviour? Could you say in that happy day when your faith clothed with him, Yes, Jesus, you have saved me. So, it's Christ Jesus the Lord, Christ himself. But then again, it's receiving him as he is himself, the divine Son, Christ Jesus the Lord, not a mere man, but the God-man. Those who say they cannot believe in his deity have not received him who is Christ Jesus, the Lord. This is not a theoretical admission of his divinity. It is our confidence. It is our joy. It is a it is our expectation, it's our conviction. Yes, we kiss his feet while I see his humanity, but I believe that since those feet could tread the waters, he is divine. I look up to his hands, and as I see them pierced, I know that he's human. But as I know that those hands multiplied the loaves and fishes till they fed 5,000, I know that he is divine. And Spurgeon's trying to emphasize here the, the unity of the person. He is these two distinct natures in one person, the God-man Jesus Christ. And you must receive him as a person who is God and man, and that is to receive the one who saves you and in whom salvation is found. And, says Spurgeon, this is a matter of certainty. We have received Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not a supposition. 
It's not guesswork. There's nothing uncertain or uh, possible or vague in this. Yes, we trust. We have received. Not we hope we've received. Not we we trust we've received. Not we, we expect or yeah, maybe it will prove. But no, this is my Jesus. And as you have received him, here's the second point of his exposition, so walk in him. And again, he's simply unpacking the language that he uses. So what does this walking imply? Action, perseverance, habit and continuance. Don't let your reception of Christ be a mere thing of thought to you, a subject only for your chamber and your closet, your, your, your room and your, your, your quiet space, but act upon it all. You are to walk in him. You can't play the beggar now that boundless wealth is conferred upon you. You need to act in accordance with this reality of having received. Then perseverance. Not only being in Christ today, that would be standing in him and falling from him, but being in him tomorrow and the next day and the next and the next and the next, walking in him all your life. Then there's habit, the constant tenor of your life. That's the relationship. It's always uh, reflecting and formed by and informed by your having received Christ Jesus the Lord. And then continuance. We ought always to be in Christ, he says. That is all the day long, every minute of the day. Though worldly things may take up some of my thoughts, yet my soul is to be in a constant state of being in Christ. So that if I'm caught at any moment, I'm in him. If at any hour someone should say to me, now how are you saved? I would still, are you saved rather? I may be able still to say, Yes. And if they ask me for evidence of it, I prove it to them by the fact that I am acting like a man who is in Christ, who has Christ in him, whose nature is changed by receiving Christ's and has Christ to be his one end and aim. And then I suppose also that walking signifies progress. So walk ye in him. That is, you're actually going somewhere. You're not just, uh, as it were, hanging around, that there's an actual uh, definite movement forward. So then, he now develops this a little bit more. You'll notice that Spurgeon, although he often, as, as in a sermon like this, says, now some applications, he's often applying this as he goes on a maybe a slightly less immediate level. But, but, but he can't get away from the practical implications of what he preaches. And so he says, I want you to notice just this, that it says, walk in him. Now, he says, I'm, I'm struggling, struggling to get this across. Um, we walk in the air. You know, that's the atmosphere that we breathe. That's what it means to walk in Christ. You don't you cross a river, you go in and you come out. But you're, you're always in Christ. You are never out of Christ or apart from him. And so he starts to, to press home some of these things. When we received Christ, he was the only ground of our faith. And it's always to be the case. Your experience then, your sanctification, your graces, your attainments, do not let them come in between you and Christ. When that happens, our assurance is damaged our joy is dented when we begin to say, oh, I've, I've had this spiritual experience. I've become this holy. I'm showing these virtues. I've uh, learned these things. I've progressed so far in my Christian life. 
But Spurgeon says, if you let those things become the pillar of your hope, then you're going to struggle. So let Christ be yours, be in him with regard to your faith all the way. And then not just the ground of your faith, but the substance of your faith, that it's Christ and Christ only. Again, that that man, that real man, those bleeding hands, that thorn-crowned head, that pierced body, that one who walked uh, in Judea, that one who rose up into glory, that one who's coming again in the glory of his resurrected humanity. Make sure that he is always the substance of your faith. Be in him. Also, he was the joy of your souls from the beginning, and so receive him still, walking in him, making him the source, the centre, I, and the circumference too of all your soul's range of delight, having your all in him. So bound your joys by being in Christ and centre your joys by being in Christ, and then to the object of your love as he was the one to whom you came and and seeing him, you loved him. So always go on loving him still. So then, here's the meaning of our text. As Christ Jesus the Lord was at the first all in all to you, so let him be while life shall last. As you received him, so walk in him. This Christ Jesus the Lord. And so he moves on to the advocacy of this principle. Before we do that, let's just remind ourselves that that's, that's actually quite a helpful way of approaching a text. It's not the only way. Sometimes we might weave our exposition through or we might make uh, the introduction handle most of the important expository matter of a text. But what Spurgeon has done here is he's really unpacked it. He's, he's developed that uh, in the sermon itself so that as we come then to advocacy and application, we've got this, uh, this, this weight of biblical substance behind us. We know what this language means. We've got a clear and substantial idea of it. And now we're asking, what difference is it going to be going to make? Well, says Spurgeon, in advocating this principle, in pressing for this principle, I would say, first of all, suppose, my brothers, you and I, having been so far saved by Christ, should now begin to walk in someone else. What then? If you've received him, but you're not walking in him, what are the consequences? Well, first of all, she says, what dishonour to our Lord? A man who came to Christ and says he found salvation in him, but after relying on him for a few years, came to find it wasn't a proper principle and now walks by feelings or by sight or philosophy or carnal wisdom. No, says Spurgeon, if you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him because otherwise you dishonour him. Do not in any degree turn from him. Besides, he asks, what reason have you to make a change? Have you got anything from the past in which Christ has proved himself not to be all-sufficient? When your soul has simply trusted Christ, he says, have you ever been confounded? When you've dared to come as a guilty sinner and believed in him, have you ever been ashamed? Very well then, let the past urge you to walk in him. And in the present, what can compel you to leave Christ? In fact, the, the hardest things we find bring us back to the Saviour, to rest our heads upon his breast. 
And what for the future? Is anything going to arise which shall render it necessary for you to tack about or strike sail or go with another captain in another ship? No, if life is long, he changes not. If you die, neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you poor? Christ makes you rich in faith. Are you sick? Who else would you want to make your bed in sickness but Christ, when maltreated and mocked at and slandered? Which better friend than the one who sticks closer than a brother? It's a beautiful uh, reminder that what we've experienced already and what we should cling to now that same Jesus is going to be with us to the end and, and there's no one and nothing else that we would ever want in his place ah he says but what if you're tempted by something to change your course for a time what's it going to be the wisdom of this world or ceremonies is there something else that that's going to entice you someone else who's going to offer what Christ alone offers do you want life your life's hid with him do you want death you're dead with christ and buried with him do you want resurrection he's raised you up with him do you want heaven he's made you sit together in heavenly places in him getting christ you have all that everything else can offer you therefore be not tempted from this hope of your calling but as ye have received christ so walk in him you notice how effective he is weaving together very naturally very easily but very effectively these these phrases these scriptural notions he's got a heart full of bible uh, and it, it just bubbles out of him and then further do you not know this that your jesus is the lord from heaven what can your heart desire beyond god if god is infinite you cannot want more than the infinite in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Having Christ, then you have God. Having God, you have everything. Uh, at this point in the sermon, you get the sense, I, I, I think, that uh, he's, uh, if, you, if you mark out his, his divisions, he's, he's just bubbling over and there's too much stuff in his heart uh, to get it all out in the course of this one sermon. And so he's just giving us almost these seed thoughts and again, that's helpful perhaps as preachers when we might say, oh, I've, I've got this material, I've got to cover my ground. Well, not necessarily. We need to stick with perhaps the, the basic outline. That's certainly helpful. But just making sure sometimes we just touch on certain things and leave these things floating around in, in someone's head to be appropriated and dwelt upon at a later date. I'm not saying we, we use that as an excuse for poor preparation or poor structuring of our sermon, but Spurgeon doesn't necessarily hammer everything as thin in every sermon. But then, uh, lest we ourselves should uh, extend this podcast beyond uh, its proper, core, proper boundaries, last of all, he says, a few words by way of application. And again, here, he's very brief. The bulk of this sermon has been that exposition, which is why it's helpful to remember that as he did that, he'd already begun to press it home. So it's not just that he's uh, backloaded this sermon with application. It was there all the way through, but now he really wants to press it home, not in a general sense, not in terms of what this language should mean to you, but you as a particular group, you as a particular group. So rather than working now from the language to 
every hearer, he's thinking about different classes of hearer and bringing the truth that he's studied out to bear upon their souls. So, one of the first applications shall be made with regard to some who complain of a want or a lack of communion, or rather, of those of whom we ought to complain, since they injure us all by their distance from Christ. So, these are people who are either themselves struggling or are having a damaging effect upon the church as a whole because they do not have much communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're members of the church, you're decent people, I say, you dare say in your own way, but you do not have communion with Christ. So he says, I'll ask some, do you ever have communion with Christ? And people would be obliged to say, well, I don't know that my life is inconsistent. I don't think anybody could blame me for any wrong act towards my fellow man. But if, if you come to that, whether I have ever had communion with Christ, I'm compelled to say that I've had it now and then, but it's very seldom. It's like the visits of the angels, few and far between. Now, brethren, you have received Christ, have you not, he asks. Then the application of the principle is, as you have received him, so walk in him. If you're a Christian, you ought to enjoy, possess, enjoy, exercise this walking in him. Let the remembrance of your marriage unto the Lord Jesus rebuke you. And if you've lost fellowship with Jesus, come again to his dear body wounded for your sake and say, Lord Jesus, help me from this time forth as I have received you day by day to walk in you. So what is the remedy for somebody who's lost their closeness to Jesus Christ? It is the Christ whom they first knew. It is coming back to him and pleading with him that he would put away that coolness, that coldness, that dullness that's in our own hearts and he'd draw us again to himself and give us grace to walk with him as we have received him. Or what of those who complain of a want of comfort, he asks. You're not as comfortable, you're not as happy and content in your own spirit as you would like to be. And why? Why you've sinned. But how did you receive Christ, he asks. Did you first get Christ as a saint? No, as a sinner. So you're a sinner now? Come to him. Oh, but I feel so guilty. Well, what hope did you ever have? You never pleaded your own righteousness. You should at least not have done. You never trusted in yourself. Come to him again as you came to him at the first. Now, again, he's not saying you're no longer a Christian and, and you need to start all over again. What he's saying is if you're a Christian who has sinned against God, if you're a Christian who's got this uh, transgression in your heart that has uh, put you at a distance from your heavenly Father, then remember how you first came and come and walk again with your surety and substitute as you did at the first, resting on him. And again, not in feelings, experiences or graces or anything of your own. So many of us build our comfort, build our assurance, build our sense of, uh, of peace and joy and satisfaction upon things that are in us and it will not sustain the load. We look first to Jesus Christ and that's where we find our peace, our joy, our comfort and our content. That's not to neglect those realities, but it's not to make them something that God never intended them to be. And then he says, there are many Christians whose lives really are not consistent. And he says, I can't understand that if you're walking in Christ. In fact, 
to completely walk in Christ would be to walk in perfect holiness. So Spurgeon often talks about the shopkeepers. They seem to make up a good portion of his congregation. He says, Christian man, so-called, doesn't exactly tell a lie, but, but something very near it. Now, I want to know whether that man was really walking in Christ when he did that. Where was the evidence of his union and communion with the Saviour? Or someone else who's constantly impatient, always troubled and fretting and mournful. I want to know whether that man is really walking in Christ as he walked at first, when he's doubting the goodness, the providence and the tenderness of God. Or a stingy, hard-hearted, mean and uh, angry so-called believer. Is that what it means to walk in Christ? Well, if you're in Christ, act as Christ would act. And that means with tenderness, with gentleness, with generosity. For Christ being in him, his hope, his love, his joy, his life, he becomes the reflex of the image of Christ. He is the glass, the mirror into which Christ looks. And then the image of Christ is reflected. And men say of that man, he is like his master. He lives in Christ. So he says, go, go, go back to the beginning. Go back to the first time that you knew you were Jesus Christ. Go back to that first uh, felt moment of, of union and communion with him. Now, bear in mind that Spurgeon was converted quite suddenly. Uh, there was a, an immediacy to this, and there'd been a long period of very difficult and dark time before that. So for Spurgeon, it's very much a before I was dead, now I am alive. That was one minute, this is the next. But I think the point that he makes, go back to the, the days of your early espousals to the Lord Jesus. And, and can it be true that the flowers of grace, like in nature, die in the autumn of our piety? As we get older, ought we to get more worldly? Should it be that our early love, the, the love of our espousals, dies away? Forgive, O oh Lord, this evil and turn us anew unto you. So he says, go back, go back to those first glimpses that you had of Jesus as a sinner coming to him and let that stir your soul. He, he begins to quote, return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. We hate the sins that made you mourn, drove you from our breast. The dearest idol we have known, whate'er that idol be, help us to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. So shall our walk be close with God, calm and serene our frame, so pure a light shall mark the road that leads us to the Lamb. And so, as you've received him, walk in him. And if you've yet to receive him, come to him. Come to him, close to him. And he repeats in a verse that they've sung in their hymns as an invitation. This fountain, though rich, from charge is quite clear. The poorer the wretch, the welcomer here. Come, needy and guilty. Come, loathsome and bare. Though leprous and filthy, come just as you are. Trust in God's anointed. That is to receive him. And then, having trusted him, continue still to trust him. May his spirit enable you to do it, and to his name shall be glory forever and ever. And so he closes. What a sweet sermon that is. Now, it's important that we, we get the balance of Spurgeon's ministry. Over the last few weeks, as we've looked at some of these featured sermons, some of them have been uh, sometimes difficult, sometimes painful. Uh, Spurgeon's opened us up. He's exposed our sin, our, our laziness, our greed. He's called us to ask, are you really in Christ? 
it's important, it's proper, it's needful that those things should be preached. And Spurgeon was criticised for preaching some of those things. But here's also the, the, the richness and the fullness and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things that, that also fill his heart and that really characterise his ministry. This is the great burden of the things that he has to say. So let us not uh, if we're hearing perhaps one or two of these things, become wrongly discouraged. You go back a couple of weeks. What do you mean, O oh sleeper? Are you a sleeping Jonah in the boat? Self-delusion. Are you truly a Christian or are you fooling yourself? And if those sermons have troubled you, perhaps they should have done. If those truths have shaken you, that may be no bad thing but come back even today to the life and walk of faith. Come to Christ in all his sweetness, in all his goodness, in all his glory, in all his mercy, in all the, the manifest excellence of all his being and his doing. Entrust yourself to him and walk in his ways. And hopefully we'll press on with similar themes uh, next time, God willing, next week's featured sermon is called Gracious Renewal. It's Sermon 490. It's uh, the, uh, first, uh, the first sermon we're going to look at from Volume 9 of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Sermons. So we're really cracking on. We're into Volume 9, making very good progress. Uh, if you're reading along with us, it means you're nearly at 500. But next week, 486 to 492, and our featured sermon, 490, Gracious Renewal. And I trust you'll join us again to hear more from the heart of Spurgeon concerning the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the kindness and mercy of his God and ours, his Saviour and ours, Jesus Christ the Lord. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app. If you want to hear more like this, visit mediagratii.org to find my Word in Season devotions, John Snyder's Behold Your God podcast, or Andy Christofides, A Ransom for Many. <laughs>